Welcome to the Hashtag Call to Scene podcast, the show focused on the strategic disruption of the status quo in technical organizations, communities, and events. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of the Hashtag Call to Scene podcast. I have a dear friend on the show today that I haven't seen in, oh my God, I think maybe two years. Um, yeah, it's been about that. So, Kojo, please introduce yourself to the audience. Hello, audience. My name is Kojo Idrisa. Uh, how to introduce myself. Um, among other things, I am a software developer, um, but one who changed careers recently, uh, relatively recently. Um, before that, I did other things that we'll talk about later. I am also a uh, one of the organizers for DjangoCon US, which is a technology conference centered in North America. I'm also the North American ambassador for DEFNA, which is the Django Events Foundation North America. That's the nonprofit that puts on DjangoCon. And uh, I do a pretty decent amount of speaking at tech conferences. Um, let's see, uh, in theory, focused around North America, but it seems as if I've sort of expanded uh, globally. So that's kind of a thing. Um, and, and that's sort of me in a nutshell. All right. I always start the show with the two questions. Why is it important to cause a scene and how are you causing a scene? All right. So I'll tell you, so, so I think it's important to cause a scene because if you want to have changes happen, uh, oftentimes changes don't happen unless there's some sort of, some sort of instigation, some, something to, to agitate change. Otherwise things would just sort of continue along. It's, if you, Look at a few old sayings like, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. And so sometimes you have to cause a scene to be that change that you'd like to see in the world. Um, or if we look at some of the basic laws of physics, some of the basic laws of physics, the idea that, um, you know, there's inertia. Objects in motion will stay in motion unless acted on by an outside force or an object at rest will remain at rest unless acted on by an outside force. And so sometimes you need to cause a certain amount of scene um, to disrupt that inertia, to cause some sort of, to, you know, to cause something that's moving in a bad direction to either change its direction or to stop its movement, but to cause something that has remained still and stagnant and hasn't made progress to begin to move. So I think <clears throat> those are the reasons I'd say, that that's why I feel it's important to cause a scene. How am I causing a scene? Uh, that is interesting. I generally consider myself to be someone who is not necessarily terribly contentious, although uh, it seems that 2019 might be the year of contention for me. We will, uh, we will see. Uh, I've had a couple of conversations with uh, a couple of friends about that. The idea that you know certain things just might need to be addressed and approached. And yeah, I've raised certain ideas um, that certain people are, are are not so happy about. But I'm sort of willing to have those fights, and so that may be what it is uh, here recently. Well, I, I guess I'll say I've done. I've tried to do a few things, May, I, and I don't know if the first thing has, has caused so much of a scene per se, but I, uh, it was intended to have a certain amount of impact. I the, the role of North American ambassador for DEFNA is something that uh, something of my creation, and and I took that I created that role and took it on because I felt that in North America a lot of the software development community is focused around the United States in and around in and around the United States. And, 
and and so you have a lot of developers, you know, who are in Canada, in Mexico, and and in uh, and so when you think of North America, you know, the U.S., Canada, and Mexico are the sort of the big three countries, but there's also a lot of the Caribbean nations uh, as well. And so, wanting to try to increase the amount of representation by uh, by you know by or for those developers who are outside of the U.S. Uh, and also, you know, making sure that those of us who are he- who are here in the U.S. are based in the U.S. are able to to benefit from the knowledge that those developers in Canada and Mexico and in the Caribbean have to offer, and just you know, trying to build more of those ties. And uh, so, so that's been, you know, I don't know if that's caused a scene per se, but I think it's, I think I brought a certain amount of awareness to that, to the fact that you know there are these strong development communities that aren't in the U.S. and and also maybe in in other parts of the U.S. Um, that don't get as much publicity as, say, a Silicon Valley or an Austin, Texas, or, you know, New York, Los Angeles, you know, the bigger cities. Um, so there's that. And then I think more recently, I started to cause a bit of a scene with some people, um, not so much of a scene with others, with this idea of a distinction between, well, not, see, not necessarily a distinction between, but sort of highlighting the differences between different styles of writing code and how people using those different styles of writing code are still part of that same part of, you know, a particular program community. So I'm a Python developer. Um, for those not familiar, Django is a web application framework that is written in Python. So Pinterest and Instagram sites, you know, like that are built with, with Django. That's what you do with the web application framework, but it's written in the Python language. And so it's part of the, the larger Python ecosystem. There has been an issue uh, well, so there are two issues. You've got software development. You've got open source projects. Um, open source projects are driven largely by volunteer efforts. And so to get volunteer contributors, those are contributors are only going to come from people who use your software, you know, who use Python or Django, and who also feel like they're actually considered members of the community. Because otherwise, why are they going to volunteer their time and energy? Um, and so I've given a talk where I sort of made that distinction and then moved on from it, but I've given another talk that goes into that in a little more detail and focuses on the fact that you've got this spectrum of people who uh, who, who use, say, Python specifically. Um, you, the, the community culture is heavily skewed towards what I call software engineers, and those are people who are writing code professionally. They tend to write code in teams. Uh, as such, there's, there's a, a certain set of software engineering tools that they need beyond just a facility with the Python language, with the programming language. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have what I call programmers, who are people who are writing code in Python, often to solve problems of their own. They're often writing that code by themselves. And they're not concerned with the code itself. They're concerned with the output of the code. And their code, the, pe- the only people running their code are usually the people who actually wrote it. Whereas with a software engineer, the code itself is a product. And the software engineers are almost never running that code themselves. And... My feeling there is that if you're along that spectrum, anywhere along the spectrum, if you're using Python to solve a problem, all programmers, all software engineers are programmers, but all programmers aren't software engineers, and they don't need to be. Within the Python community, you're seeing a lot of growth uh, in the community coming from the data science direction. Mm-hmm. Those people tend to be more towards the programmer end of the spectrum, but they also you know, have, the, have the capacity to contribute. Um, but with the community culture being so heavily skewed towards software engineering, mm-hmm. 
we have situations where programmers or people towards that end of the spectrum are basically being told that they're doing it wrong since they're not using all of the software engineering tools. And as a result, I feel like, uh, I feel like input from those people or willingness to contribute from that set of the, that segment of the population is lower than it should be because they're being told to, you know, they're doing it wrong. And so why would you want to contribute to that? And so that's something I have spoken. I give a, I give a talk on that locally and it raised a bit of contention uh, among software engineers. So, yeah, you know, some some of the software engineers, of course. Of course. Yeah, so, so they weren't. Some of them weren't happy with, about that. Now I've spoken to some software engineers, and they're like, "Yes, exactly. That's exactly what we need." Mm-hmm. Um, and so I will be giving uh, a talk along those lines as a keynote in in New York in October at Pi Gotham. And so you know, we'll see how people respond to that. But well, yeah. What's your what's your so for someone who says you really don't know how you're causing a scene, those are two very specific. Um, everybody doesn't have to call the scene like me, you know, where I just call people out. That's not everybody's style. Um, and that's not my only style. Um, I do a lot of creeping, a lot of things behind this. The, calls out, call, the call out happens when the other stuff doesn't work. <laughs> um, that is not my go-to. But I totally get you on the North American because I personally um, have an issue with, and I've said this on the show before, just calling myself an American because it ignores that there's a North, South, and Central America. So I'm from the United States. So I really jive with that. There's an assumption or a default when you talk about North America that it's the United States and and all these other communities within the developer community are ignored um, or valued less. Um, I, I hear it when I'm having, um, I've, had, I've had several people on the show who um, recognize that they, because they're particularly from the Caribbean or Mexico are getting paid less um, because, and doing the same um, because they're not in the U.S., but they're not getting um, paid the same amount of money um, for the same amount of work. So that's one thing I think is very, that's very going against the status, challenging the status quo, because um, we need to be valued no matter where we are. Um, and then the whole, I, I love how you broke down about the, the, the spectrum of programming. And one spectrum is the um, compute, the software engineer and the programmer, because it also speaks to me when I talk about um, how we use the word technical wrong in this space um, and how we ascribe technical work to developers and non-technical work to everyone else when that is not the definition of the word technical. Technical is someone with a specific skill. And so what a programmer or software engineer or whatever you want to put them, they have a, um, they are technical in um manipulating code or writing code, but they, many of them do not have the subsequent skills that I have when it comes to humans. (laughs) And, and being, having that called non-technical is insulting. Uh, So I totally get what you're saying because there's so much, and this is when it comes also when we're talking about diversity, when people, there's so many ways that we can improve diversity, not just on gender and, and race. Um, and having a, a developer community that comes from backgrounds that are varied helps inform the conversations. So when you have someone who has been hacking away at solving their own problem, um, that's valuable information. 
instead of somebody who's just given a problem from a project manager that solves a client's problem and you know that that come it's not personal it's the eight nine to five job and they're doing it and and then when you bring in when you're just like this data scientist who are using um, python that's a whole that's an entirely different um uh, perspective on code because most m- most of them are using code specifically to solve problems. Um, they learn just enough because that's not where their focus is. Their focus is how to in- gathering the data. They use code as a tool to interpret the data. And so you need all these different perspectives to come together to make more informed choices so that we make pr- better a better cleaner, less biased programming languages, which means we have less bias, hopefully minimize bias and harm in our products and services that we create with these, these programming languages. So you're being very disruptive. <laughs> <laughs> we, like, we'll, we'll see how it works out. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's been interesting to me. Uh, when I gave the first version of this talk, uh, and so initially, so this talk comes out of another talk. There's a, so there's another talk that I've given called The Junior Developer's Guide to Software Engineering. And that comes from me being someone who has changed careers into software engineering uh, and someone who aspired to be a software engineer and meeting lots of people who are trying to follow a similar path and having them ask this question of, well, how much you know Python or how much JavaScript or what have you do I need to know to become a software engineer? And in my time sort of learning about software engineering and, 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 you know, becoming one professionally, one of the things, you know, that came across was how much of programming language X do I need to know is kind of the wrong question. There's this other set of skills that are necessary. Like if, if your goal is to be hired as a, as a software engineer to work as a professional developer, there's a different, there's a, there's an additional set of skills you need beyond just facility with a language. And so, so I've given I've given one talk around that, and and, and so I you know focused on those particular skills, <clears throat> um, because a lot of people are trying to make themselves sort of better programmers, trying to learn more of the core programming language, and that's important. But there's a lot more that goes into and being that around. and that's the part that I find that is missing in this community, and where the disconnect and the apathy comes in when we put so much importance on the code and not the things that make coding a profession. Because for me, code, whatever language it is, is a tool to solve a problem. And if you're not able to have a conversation about what the problem is, why is it a problem? um, What in my knowledge base do I have to solve this problem? What knowledge and skills do I need to acquire to help solve this problem? Um, And we're arguing about which language is more important, you know, um, in the JavaScript, is it, you know, is it Angular or Vue or React? And, or we have these spaces where, you know, you're a Python shop and every problem has to be solved with Python. You know, it's like, that is not, that, this is where we get into problems. It's, it's, it's like, can we, can we back up a bit and, and, and get some critical thinking skills? Can we back up a bit and learn how to collaborate? Can we back up a bit and, and start talking about how we, um, the creativity part of, um, of, of what we do and, and, um, and how it impacts things. The, the, the language 
that tool will present itself at some point. I, I, find, I just find it it's so often that we're just, as the you know, old saying, putting the cart before the horse. You know, it's like, this is, let's do JavaScript or whatever. It's like, what's the problem? What are you trying to solve? Yeah, exactly. You know, and that's, and that's the same thing with Python. And, 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 and it's like, what are you, let's figure out what are you trying to solve first and then reverse engineer that. <laughs> True. Yeah. And I think there's a, you, it's, it's a, some of, of this talk that I'll give in October is related to a lot of community community-based things. And since I became, a, not just after I became a professional developer, but once I became more active with the Python community in around 2013, I decided that my approach was going to try to be, <clears throat> to try to help grow the community and specifically to try to add new contributors to the community. Um, so th that's where a lot of my efforts have been in a lot of the talks that I've given over the past, I guess, six years now have had that as a theme, have had that as an underlying theme. I haven't always done the best job of bringing that, that underlying theme to the surface, but a lot, of the, a lot of the talks that I've given have been based around that. Uh, Russell Keith McGee, who, is, who, who was the, head, the president of the, the Django Software Foundation for five years, um, and is still you know, very active in the Django community, gave a keynote at PyCon uh, this year, 2019, where one of the things he talked about was the idea of instead of having open source communities be fully reliant on volunteer work, um, you know, a certain amount, if there's a certain amount of funding available in open source communities, you, know, you can get professionals to help you with things, be, you know, because professionals who aren't software developers have skills that these open source projects need as far as oh, management, yeah. administration, marketing. Um, uh, documentation. Exactly. You have technical writers, documentation, yes. Yes. Uh, all manner of other things, but, but also some developers as well to actually, you mm -hmm. know, write code consistently. I know that Django as a project has benefited tremendously from being able to do some fundraising and being able to use that fundraising to hire the two Django fellows who now work to make sure that Django has a consistent release schedule and they're, you know, triaging tickets and, and working on that sort of thing. Um, and so I agree fully with, with Russell's point of, you know, having some funding allows you to bring professionals in to bring their skills to bear on the problem. But I would say that in addition to that, there's this idea of, okay, so let's say, you know, a whole bunch of Python or Django money falls out of the sky and those projects have that money available to them. Well, if you're trying to pay professionals to work on your project, other people have money and need those professional skills as well. So why, why would I work on if I'm if I'm an attorney who can help you with your open source licensing things or or what have you? If I have the skills to work on your project and you have money to pay me, why would I work on your project as opposed to somebody else's project? Because, you know, they have money, too. Mm -hmm. And part of the, the, the point that I, I, I will hopefully be trying to make in my talk uh, in October is this idea that. Trying to make sure that people who are using Python, regardless of how they're using it, are actually treated as if they are valid members of the community. Because, mm -hmm. the, again, the only people who will ever make a contribution to your particular open source stack are people who get some value from it, i.e. use it to solve some sort of problems for themselves, but then secondly, actually feel like they are included in the community. Because if, if you, I mean, you can just download Python for free and, and not pay for it and just use it to solve problems for years and years and never meet anybody else in the Python community. Exactly. Exactly. And, or if you have interactions with people from the Python community, say at your local meetup or at a regional conference or at a national conference, 
and you run into people who are telling you that you're not doing it right, you're not Pythoning right because you haven't installed Docker or because you're not you know, using you know, this thing or, or this method or that method that's not necessary for what you're doing and that it's not useful to you, then like, why would you, why would you ever consider spending your time or, or energy on that project, whether it be on a voluntary basis or on a paid basis? Because if I can get paid by Python people or by party X, and the Python people keep telling me I'm wrong and that I'm not good enough and I'm, I'm not really one of them, well, I'll take Party X's money. Party X clearly respects me for my skills and my talents. I'll, you know, I'll take them there and, and get the money there. So a lot, a lot of um, what you're saying is, is really interesting because I see in, because I have the benefit of um, overlapping various communities, not just one language. Um, it's interesting because um, I have this same conversation in the Selenium community um, and was helping their um, core team um, come up with their, um, finish up their, um, their code of conduct as well as having conversations with them about money. Um, because one of the things, you make some great points about you know, being welcome, but one of the things that is prevalent in, in most of these communities is the fact that the people who, who are actively contributing have the privilege to actively contribute. Um, they either are doing it, as you said, be, because their job is paying them a part of their time to, to work on open source, or they have a lifestyle that allows them to have this extra time <laughs> to, exactly. to, to contribute to open source. And then that becomes, and it goes back to what you were just saying about the feeling, the part of the community. Um, it, it becomes a thing of, well, if, because I really had to have a conversation with um, one member of this, the Selenium team when he was he was saying that um, about pay, and I was like, well, um, pay in most people that's that I mean that is not the be end all and be all, but for pay is is a very tangible form of how you value me. Period. <laughs> um, and exactly. To make, and to make the assumption that people have the time or even the desire to work for free to prove something to you first is um, about privilege. Um, there are a lot of individuals who just do not, cannot afford to, um, to do open source for free. They just can't afford it and they shouldn't. And these individuals are mainly, I'm going to be, you know, be frank as my audience knows me, these are people mainly in marginalized communities um, where they, these are people who are parents. These are people who, um, who may not have a, um, a lap, access to a laptop at, at, in the middle of the night or off their job or, or all these other things. And we make a lot of assumptions about how people, how serious people are or how committed they are based on them giving free work to a community that um, let's be honest, the people who are used, like you said, you can download this for free. People are making money off this stuff. Um, Very true. It, um, Pinterest and Instagram have taken this free software and they're making money off of it. Um, yeah. And so to, to ask someone who is not a corporation or who doesn't have these, these privileges to just, oh, okay, well, if you're not doing it, you're not serious about it. And I really, really have a problem with um, companies who are using this as a as a data point for how, how they hire. Um. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think a lot of that is uh, 
a lot of that is just, for lack of a better term, just sort of lazy. It's, um, it's kind of like, well, we've seen other people do this or we've seen other people use this. And so that's what we'll do. And I will say that there is, let's see, in, in, there's a term in computer science that I've become fond of, the, the idea of a, a naive solution. And it's a solution that appears to be correct at first glance, but if you dig in a little deeper, you realize, oh, you know what? This is not really the way to go. Everyone in the hashtag called the scene community shares the same common beliefs based on a set of four specific guiding principles. One, tech is not neutral, nor is it apolitical. Two, intention without strategy is chaos. Three, Lack of inclusion is a risk and increasingly a crisis management issue. And lastly, but most importantly, four, we must prioritize the most vulnerable. To find out more about the guiding principles and adding them to your Twitter profile banner, please visit hashtag causeascene.com. You realize, oh, you know what? This is not really the way to go. And I feel like that kind of... uh, That permeates this community. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, the use of GitHub as a resume... Um, Stack Overflow, yeah, exactly. um, your score, yeah, exactly. And, and so, and, and that's an easy thing to look at. Uh, now, at, at the same time, let's see, it, it is, uh, I, despite you know maybe becoming more and more contentious as time goes on, I do make an effort to be to to try to to see things from as many perspectives as I can uh, to have a certain amount of empathy. And like, so, as an example, recently, uh, Jacob Kaplan Moss, who is one of the people credited as one of the creators of Django um, put out a call. The Django Software Foundation is trying to have an application built um, to, to help uh, make it easier for people to join the Django Software Foundation to become members. And so he put out a call and it was, it was going to be a paid position and he, he would be mentoring them. He'd, he'd be mentoring whoever that intern is that gets hired. Uh, they got more than a thousand responses. And so now he's in the process of, of having to try to go through those and sort through, and sort through that. Um, and, and so it becomes a large task. And, and this isn't to sort of to try to, quote unquote, give one of my people a pass. Um, but it's just the reality of you know, when people are trying to make these determinations, they often look for what is sort of the shortest or the quickest path. It, it's the same. With, if you look at a lot of jobs, you know, tech or non-tech that require a, a bachelor's degree. I remember uh, in undergrad, I worked at UPS for a while. And I had a coworker who uh, who I also you know went to school with, and like for the next position up that he wanted, they just required a bachelor's degree. His his degree was like in biology or something. That's like no one cared what the degree it was in. You just needed to have a bachelor's degree because that helped minimize the number of people who you know who would be qualified. And so I think, uh, but I think this also comes back to Russell's point, and I guess in my my sort of extension to Russell's point as far as you needing perfect needing or wanting professionals to be involved in the open source community because it's largely driven by software engineers and software engineers have a, a you know like Liam Neeson a, a particular set of talents um, but they you know they might not have a lot of skills outside of those and one of that you know part of that comes down to how do you hire people how do you make determinations about who has the skill set that you need it's really interesting to me because um even in that i um I first of all, I, the 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 uh, I'm always why are, we need to stop looking for simple solutions to complex problems that gets us in a lot of a lot of trouble. Um, but one of the things that I'm talking about a lot lately is we need to stop hiring as if we're making widgets and start hiring because we're in a knowledge economy. 
Um, and we need to be able to, we need to be hiring people based on their ability to bring knowledge and acquire knowledge that can be shared and scaled throughout an organization. Um, and so that goes beyond just being able to code. And this is what, I, I, and, and you think you get a lot of contention, man, I get a lot Yeah, I get a lot of pushback on this because I need to, I mean, at this point to me, coding is a commodity. It's something that can be bought and sold. And, and people get pissed off. And that is just what to, it is. If you have, if your if, if the extent of your skills is I can sit at a computer and I can code, you are not bringing value to an organization in, in, in the knowledge economy. We're no longer making widgets. We are making, we're turning information into knowledge that can be scaled and can be used for competitive advantage and differentiation. So for me, the ideal in the knowledge economy, economy the ideal engineer is, or programmer, um, whatever title you want to give, is someone who understands the other, um, it's not a silo thinking, we're now systems thinking. We're yeah. thinking about the entire system and how am my job, how does it impact marketing? My job, how does it impact sales? My job, how does it impact in accounting? And, 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 and how am I making life harder for the person at the um, support desk? Um, I tell every engineer, they need to go sit at the support desk for a week. Take some of them calls. You, you really understand the pain points of what you're creating. Um, and a lot of people don't have those skills. True, or or even awareness of those skills or the fact that they lack them. Um, there is, and so I guess there are two different things I can say about that from my own perspective, and then from someone else's. Um, there's a guy named Patrick McKenzie, uh, known on Twitter as Patio Eleven. He is an American software developer who lives in Japan. I was living in Japan for quite some time. I ended up meeting him in 2008. I want to say uh, he. He lives actually, well, he used to live in the part of Japan near where um, I have extended family. And so I ended up meeting him then. <clears throat> and he has written a blog post, I think this called like, don't call yourself a programmer. Uh, and he talks about how, you know, the key is actually, you know, solving problems and, and adding value. And I will say, so before, before I was a software developer, um, I was, I have a degree in accounting and I got an MBA and I've been a university instructor um, in two different countries, and I've, I've taught accounting and management information systems. And so I, I had a career in business mm -hmm. before I became a software developer. And that's really what it comes down to. Literally, no one cares at all. And, and you know, in, in certain situations, I might use more adult language, but I, I don't know if that's necessary here. But oh, but 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 it's it's. Let me let you know. Every all language is accepted here. <laughs> so, but yeah, like, like literally, no one cares about whether or not you are, you know, whether you're using Python or whether you're using JavaScript or whether you're using Haskell, are you using asynchronous programming, are you using functional programming, are you using object-oriented programming? Exactly. Literally no one cares. As, for, as far as actually like writing checks and generating revenue and people's salaries being paid, what happened, and, and I say this from the perspective of someone, you know, who's worked in accounting and in different aspects of business, and I've worked for nonprofits and for-profits and, you know, and all sorts of stuff in between, um, two of the largest accounting firms in the world, and I've been the accountant for a one-person law firm. Mm -hmm. No one cares about your technology. Like, no, if you're using Python 3.7 versus 3.6, 
no one cares. Only the developers care. What people, what really matters is, are you solving a problem that I need solved? And if you're solving a problem that someone needs solved, they'll pay you whatever value that they'll, they'll pay for whatever value you get. And, and that, that um, is exactly the message I'm trying to get across to the community we have. Um, so I have a client and we were um, doing a, um, a job description and they put this five year thing in there because that's what, and I, and I, we had to have a conversation. Why does that matter? Why does that matter if they have a five year experience in this thing? If they come from a different industry and they have transferable skills that get you that thing, that does not matter. And again, that's that, like you said, um, at, at, at uh, um, UPS, the bachelor's degree was used to weed people out. This is, we're still doing that. And we cannot afford to do that when the skills we need are problem solving. <laughs> the skills we need are, are, I would value your transferable skills over somebody who just came out of college with a CS degree. Bottom line, I can teach you how to code. It's going to take time, but to teach somebody how to solve problems is something totally different. You know, or, or to teach someone a different set of domain knowledge or to give them insight into, you know, what are the actual problems yes. that our customers are having? You know, we're writing code for these people. Um, there is another talk that I have worked on and it hasn't been accepted in any way. I gave a lightning talk version of it. Um, it's speak, speaking of contention, I ended the talk with the challenge for people to fight me about this, this topic. Um, I feel like, you know, when people are doing things like, oh, well, I need five years of experience or this or that. Um, I think that's in the same vein as companies that are trying to hire developers, always oh looking for Lord. senior developers oh or these full, full stack developers. It's like so every senior it, my, developer my, has the job that they want. They want. They, well, they, well and, and so, so he, here's, here's how I see it. Um, Can we fill the pipeline, please? <laughs> well, it, I mean, so, and there are, many, there are many problems with that. Yeah. <laughs> One is, you know, you always hear, oh, there aren't enough developers. And that's because everyone's trying to hire this mythical senior developer. But I think everyone's trying to hire this mythical senior developer or full stack developer because they don't really know what they want. Yes. And so they're thinking, okay, well, if I hire this you know, mythical senior developer who has all this advanced experience, they'll figure out my problem for me and solve it for me. Um, whereas if you you know, take, spend some more time to focus on, okay, what exactly is it that I need here? What am I trying to get done? The more clearly you define your problem, the more clearly you can define who you need. Okay, so you just hit on something that I say all the time. Most, let's be honest, most, in, most organizations, and I'm using the word organizations, in this space are not businesses. What they are are products and services that they've been able to scale. They are not businesses. This is why they don't know the problems they need to solve. This is why they don't know what skills they need to help them solve these problems. And I see it over and over again. I ask questions and they're like, hmm. I'm like, well, you're making a million dollars. You haven't figured this out. Where, what are your processes for this? Hmm. So you're telling me every time you have this client, you're starting all over from scratch? Hmm. I'm like, oh my God, this is so inefficient. What business are you in? What are you supposed to be doing? Where are your processes, procedures, and policies to help it to, 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 for a business? Where are they? What you have, all you can tell me about is the product or service you have. But that's not a business. That's just a product or service. Yeah. And I think, especially in the tech space, 
you have a lot of startups and smaller companies that are built sort of by and around engineers. And, and, and maybe those engineers didn't, you know, they came from large organizations and they felt that they were being, you know, stifled by too much process and, and too much, you know, whatever. And so they just wanted to be free to, you know, you know, the, the, the thing, information wants to be free, you know, you know, developers just want to be free, man. They just want to write code, bruh, you know. Yeah, I want to put my headphones on and not be bothered. <laughs> exactly. And, and so, you know, and I mean, there's definitely something to be said for, you know, for that in terms of certain types of productivity. But, you know, can you actually run a sustainable organization that way? I, but, but I also think this is one of the reasons uh, I, I, ha, I am now and continue to be sort of confused and amazed by the whole venture capital, you know, venture funding thing. But, but I, I think that that's the reason that it's such a popular model because like, if I can get someone to give me like $4 million, then like me and like five of my friends can just sit and write code for a year before we really have to figure out figure out what our business yeah, is. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, yeah. We can just you know, sort of work on our idea. And, and, you know, and if, uh, if I can convince someone that my idea is super cool enough and, and they'll give me $4 million, you know, or, or X amount, X large amount of money, then, you know, yay, congratulations. Now I recognize that there are some, there's some businesses that require that amount of capital up front. And there are some situations where you have a well-defined idea, but, you know, to implement that idea will take a certain amount of time and effort. And you, you don't want to just, you know, we were talking before about open source and, and things being voluntary. It's hard to just get like three or four of your friends to work on this thing for free for six months or a year. And so, so I understand that there are some situations where that's viable, but I, I feel like it's become this sort of weird this weird sort of self-perpetuating thing. It's like the, it's like the, it's, it's now the, the default. It's now the, that, that's how we measure everything against that. Yeah. Did you, did you get funding? Yeah. And, 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 and getting funding is not a business. Exactly. You know? And that is where yeah. we see, I mean, the, the, the whole, the, oh my God, I don't know if you saw the recent Uber um, expose, but oh my word. I, I, yeah, I've, I've seen bits and pieces oh. of it, but it, it seems like basically like Uber is a, is a scheme to transfer money from, uh, from venture capitalists to individual yes. drivers, you know, and, and, but not very well. <laughs> yeah, well, it, 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 but they've never had, they don't have a business model. And that's the, well, the, let's take that back. The business model is, the business model was to disrupt a space that there was no way to disrupt because people had already been in there trying to disrupt it. And so because they had the funds uh, for marketing and, and PR, you don't see um, no one was paying attention to. And it's not just Uber. Lyft has. No, oh, yeah. Problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, whole, um, the whole ride sharing. Space. Yes. Uh, they, all of them have the same problem. And it's and it's only now when you have to after seven, six, seven years of billion dollar losses each year now you want it the only way these vcs can get their money back is to go public and so now you're seeing all these companies that from last 10 to 15 years who have had shown no business model who have had no profit the only way these venture capitalists are going to get their money out is to go public and then that means putting public shares of a company that is again a company not a business out to investors who you know, it's it, it it's it's a shell game. I, I I sit back and I just like, wow, this is amazing how this happened. It 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 just blows my mind how the the again when I'm going in I'm going to these clients and I'm asking them questions, 
Um, because you know, I, I I was pursuing a doctor's in business administration, so I I mean, I'm ready to rock and roll, and I'm like, you don't have shit. You don't even have. Oh my God! Now we have to do business um, job descriptions. We have to do bare—I mean, the basics. What are your core values? Can we can we you know put in core values in place? Because what's happened in this space is because technology lowered the lowered the um, the uh, uh, the the entry for so many things. If you knew how to code, that was the only thing you needed. Yeah. And it and it gave you this sort of this extremely long lever with, that you could use to you know, to make things happen that you couldn't have made happen before. Yeah. And like a regular bit or different business in a a different industry would have figured out long before, Oh, this is not going to (laughs) work, but you've been giving this money, this, like you said, this long tail to try to figure this thing out. And and, and there, there are definitely some spaces where the application of technology makes it possible to do things like at a lower cost. And, And so you have a lot of, and you have a lot of like what are called sometimes somewhat derisively called lifestyle businesses mm-hmm. where people will, you know, build a product or service and, you know, it worked, it's, you know, maybe it's a one or two person company and they are able to, to generate enough income for themselves to live very happily and to build stuff on their terms and, and they're fine. But those aren't the stories that we hear about. What, exactly. what we hear about are the, you know, the Ubers and the, and the Lyfts and the, the and Facebook. The slacks and, and all the, the, the um, cause I'm really wanting to get um, CJ on the show to talk about the implosion that's happening at NPM. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, yeah <laughs> um, I've seen a little bit of that. Um, well, her keynote for um, JSConf EU was quite enlightening and um, it talked about, um, again, there was a choice between, you know, let's let's figure out the business model or, and this is simplistic, but let's figure out the business model or take VC money to figure this thing out. And and then once they took VC money, the um the culture changed because now it's we need to generate. This is yeah. you know, this is yeah. this we need to churn this. We need to this is not making money. And so um and that's I see that um it's unfortunate, but I see that a lot in this industry, which leads us to causing harm. Because at this point, if you don't have core values in place, if you don't know what your business model, if you don't know what your customers need and what what they benefit from and what harms them, because now you don't have, you don't have the time, you don't have the 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 usually don't have the the wherewithal or the knowledge to figure that out. And now, I, I and so now you're you're just um, automating or. Um, standardizing harm. It's the whole, even though uh, Facebook, everybody keeps saying, well, they changed that model or move fast, break things. By that time, it was already a part of the culture. Yeah. Move fast and break things was already part of the culture by the time they changed it. And that's why 15, 10 to 15 years later, we're seeing the fact that they moved, they moved fast and broke things and did not stop to learn from the yeah. things they were and, and also, once you get VC money involved, um, you, you're on the hook to these people. And, you know, VCs don't want sort of normal business returns. They want, you know, they're, they're investing for the hope of getting these outsized returns. Uh, and, and I, or, or they could, or they can get a CD. I mean, yeah, yeah exactly. And, and, I mean, and I guess like the sort of the, the term that gets, or like, I guess the number that gets tossed around is, you know, they're basically, you know, investing in expecting only one out of every 10 of their investments to, to have these outsized returns. And it, it will then subsidize the other nine or, or sort of make up for the other nine. Yeah. But, you know, but they're they're going to push all ten for these outsized returns, 
And so, you know, you don't have time to grow a business or grow anything organically or, or to, you know, have it develop on its own. Or if you have, they come and it shifts because I, I worked for, um, for briefly for a boot camp that was bought out um, for uh, work briefly for New York coding, uh, New York school of, what is it? New York school of code and design. Um, and um, Strayer brought them out and their whole culture shifted. And the CEO was um, very disheartened because yeah. he did not expect that to happen. Um, and they were just yeah, what they had built and they were having, they were profitable when they were doing it themselves. Yeah. But it was about, once straight about them, it was about scale, 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 scale. Exactly. And, and you know, that takes, that takes um, time to make sure that scaling is working and it's, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and you see that a lot. And that, that is just going back again when you were saying that just the North American focus and this is what I love about the Atlanta space is that we have all kinds of tech here. I mean, every industry of tech I can think of. We have great schools and we have black and brown people doing it here. And so uh, I have heard, and so I remember being younger, um, like when I was in college, how, you know, like lots of people were moving, trying to move to Atlanta, you know, it, it was sort of like, you know, like the new black Mecca, but then it seems like that has sort of, that, that kind of, it, it seemed like it sort of faded from the national conscious for a while, but it seems like it has recently come back, and especially in terms of tech. I've heard more and more about oh, that. We, you know, folks are coming yes, back to Atlanta. We are, we're, yeah, it's it's a it's a place where you can go to any kind of meetup here. It's not like um, you go to. I think I've heard in North Carolina they have Microsoft, so it's Net Community or okay. whatever. It's not. It's not that. Okay. Everything is yeah. here. You know, WordPress and JavaScript and Python and and. Um, Enclosure, you know, every everything is here. Um, what we still struggle with is um, it's still the you know the the good old boy network. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> um, it's still the, it's still the deep south. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and that's and so you find that um, that um, white uh, uh, startups are getting money where there's there's a struggle for black and brown and women to get funding. But the unique thing about that being here, and because we have so many black and brown women uh, people here, um, there are people. Uh, again, I don't, I, I don't subscribe to the VC model, but there are black and brown VCs here. Yeah. Um, and 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 black and brown incubators here. Yeah. Uh, and so that's where the uniqueness comes in. Um, and again, we had, like I said, we have sports tech, we have gaming, we have uh, entertainment, we have. Healthcare, we have financial. Um, it's it's like this this place where if you wanted to skip around and get a little knowledge about everything, yeah, um, you could do that. Yeah, I, I was actually I I had wanted to try to be in Atlanta this upcoming weekend for an Overwatch event, but it uh, it, it wasn't going to work out. So um, yeah, you need to come down and and hang out um, because I could tell you it's nothing better than going to an event and seeing black people. It's not like, oh my God, when you go some places and you're like trying to find us. Yeah. It's, it's a great feeling to walk in a space and we're there. We're, and, we're, and we have yeah, the mic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a great thing. Yeah. yeah. And, and I've been at many events where like I'm the only one or yes. I'm, I'm, I'm one of very few. And so just because of the things that I do in the, the Django and the Python community, I tend to be fairly high visibility. And I'm also you know, bigger than a lot of people. And so, so, you know, I am like literally physically. You yes. Know, yeah. You're visible, a big guy. You know, um, yeah. 
but and so it, it's a it, it is interesting to you know it i spoke at uh i spoke at pi caribbean oh, the, yes. this year and last year uh, i spoke when they were in puerto rico right before the hurricane oh my god that was lovely yeah and, and so i was you know pointing out to someone you know how they, this was like you know d- this is the first time being like in a in, in a, a country of mostly black people yes. uh, although in the dr they you know so, and so there are, there's also that issue of you know how is black defined as you move around the world, and so yeah. I, I've been I've been fortunate enough relatively recently to you know like like so like I was in, I spoke at Icon Australia last year, and you know so there black tends to refer to the indigenous people, the Aboriginal yes. people, exactly. whereas like in the, in the DR you know, in in North America, in, in, I I tend to say we're Noram. Just, yeah, because we're the descendants slave. <laughs> yeah, and so in, in Noram. Uh, you know, black usually means people of African descent. No, I mean, and also South America as well. Usually, yeah. black usually means people of African descent. Um, but actually, I'll be I'll be keynoting a PyCon Africa oh. in August, and so that will be well, I'll be one of the keynotes. But that will also be like my first time in Africa ever. So that will be, I think. And that's what I could tell you about this whole. This is what this is where I can tell you. This is why I get pissed off at gatekeepers, because I've never had this level of travel experience. And my life, I was at, coming from education. There was no way in hell I could travel and do what I have done. Um, and, and, and so when people create barriers for other people like me to get in this space and to experience the same thing, it pisses me off. Because I can tell you, I am really enjoying the people I meet. Because like um, JSConf EU, that was there. They're putting that conference on a hiatus for a while. And I didn't even know it. But it was like homecoming because there were so many people I knew internationally who knew that that conference was not gonna, you know, it's gonna be. So we just like met up, and it was like, yeah, yeah. oh my god, I haven't seen you. you and and that's that's such a great part of what this what tech can do for people. It can fundamentally true. fundamentally change our worldview, um, and um, and I and that's why I just I can't I can't stand by and let other people. Like this is the way it used to, it's always been. No, nope, it's changing, and you get used to it because we're coming. And, and, and. yeah, <laughs> and I think uh, I mean what you say about sort of it, <clears throat> some of the international travel changing your worldview. Uh, I think that is part of what inspired me to. So I took uh, I created this the North American ambassador role uh, while I was on the board of Defna, uh, so, you know the, the nonprofit that was on Django Khan. So I ran for their board, and that was kind of my platform was trying to improve connection between the other, the non-U.S. North American countries as far as, you know, because the N.A. indefinitely is North America. And so trying to improve that. But I think some of that, I guess some of that empathy comes from the fact that I've lived overseas. And so, you know, living outside of your home country and outside of your, your sort of the context that you were raised in gives you some insight into other cultures, other, you know, other societal norms, things of that nature. And so, in, in my activities with DjangoCon as a DjangoCon organizer, I've been a DjangoCon organizer since 2016, um, and I spoke at my first DjangoCon in 2015. And so, in my activities and meeting with those folks, I've met developers from Canada and from Mexico and from the Caribbean, and in, in sort of realizing, okay, like there are the you know there are high quality developers here in these other parts of North America. Uh, if if Defna is the Django Events Foundation for North America. Then you know we need to try to, yeah, we need to try to sort of expand the focus and make sure, um, you know, that we're sort of drawing in as much talent and as much contribution as we can, and also trying to provide as much support as we can around the continent. Um, 
and, and, and I mean, and I, I'm aware of the reality that in North America, the United States is the dominant economic player. Like I, I know that that's that that is what it is, uh, but that doesn't mean that there aren't contributions that can be provided from other countries and, and even from, from smaller places in other countries. I mean, so like in, in Canada, yeah, I mean, yes, there's Toronto, but there's also Montreal and Vancouver, you know, the Calgary and Alberta have, you know, have, uh, you know, you know, fa- fairly well developed um, tech scenes. Um, Ottawa, I'm not sure off the, t- I, I know there's a pilot meetup on Ottawa, but you know, I mean, there are in, in, in Mexico, there's Mexico city, Guadalajara. Um, I actually need to, to set up a call with somebody about, Things like in the on the Texas Mexico border, and also in Monterrey, one of the best technical universities uh, in Mexico is in Monterrey, which is maybe two hours south from the Texas border. Um, I know in in Tijuana, the, like the the, the Tijuana uh, Python community, in, in the develop the, the developer community in general interacts with the San Diego community, and so there are lots of things. You know, PyCon Latin America is happening. What the last weekend in uh, August. And, so, and you know, and so that, so there was a lot happening just in North America, and you know, Pi Caribbean has been going on for at least three or four years. Yeah, I was about to say, but I think the fourth year. Yeah. 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 And so I, I've spoken at the last two, and it, but I mean, but again, like there's strong develop, there's a strong developer community there as well. And I mean, I of course am focused on Python, but there are people who are doing other things there as well. Mm-hmm. And the government in the Dominican Republic um, is actually investing, you know. And, that, and, and same thing was happening when they did it in Puerto Rico. The government was, uh, um, so they see the value in. Yeah, that's well, no, what? And but the but government is our government. But I was, it, it, I'm speaking. It, well, ex- yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, well, and and and, and, and that's the, the sort of the somewhat disheartening thing. And so I'm I'm originally from Washington D.C. And so I am, you know, I take some of that stuff kind of personally from the standpoint of like, like I, I am literally from the government, you know, it's like, I'm, yeah, because you don't have a, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not from any particular state or whatever. I'm from a federal district that is a creation yeah. of the government, you know, I'm yeah. like from like the pure distillation of America. And so I, I, it's, it's like, you know, it kind of pains me because it's like, you know, we could be doing better because it, again, Puerto Rico is part of the United States, but it often has to, uh, it, it often sort of operates like as its own entity partially because it, it's been forced it has to. to. It has yeah, to. Exactly. You know, it, yeah. and, you know, but, but I feel like if... if don't, don't put a question mark on that. that if nothing else, that hurricane explain, show, definitely yeah, show. Yeah. That. But I mean, but then like being in the... And so like I know uh, Forlan, who is, was one of the organizers for Pi Caribbean. Yes. And so, you know, from being in the DR and seeing, like, you know, both times I've spoken to Pi Caribbean in the DR, like, you know, seeing representatives from from that government ministry that this you know supporting trying to help grow their their information technology industry having them come to Pi caribbean and talk to, and present to us about things and things of that nature and the actual support that's being given and you know knowing that like the work that people like Furline and others have done in puerto rico it's like okay well that's that's part of like I'm I'm from the U.S. That's part of my country. Like, why aren't we? Yeah, you know, we could be doing the same thing and more in in the PR. Yeah, that, then, you know, I mean, because you, you have know, way more resources than the DR. Exactly, and so <laughs> yeah, you know, so, so that's a little a little disheartening. Yeah. But I, again, one of the reasons I took on this role was to try to, you know, increase some awareness, but also help make some connections between people. And and also, I am relatively new to the career, and so I wanted to you know sort of see okay, like like what what all what goes on with you know with python and with software engineering you know you know how do you how are things done in mexico city versus in mexico city in guadalajara versus 
in in Santo Domingo versus in Montreal or in Vancouver? You know, mm-hmm. what you know, what are the different opportunities? What do people do? What are the concerns? What are the constraints? That kind of thing. So, and also um, the U.S. with being the default has a lot of privilege that a kid lend. Um, these various um, communities are, are around the U, um, the around North America. Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah. So, in your last moments, what would you like to say? Uh, let's see. As far as to the cause of scene podcast audience, I would say maybe pick your battles from some of the standpoint of. And so, I, and I'll say that it's there's a part of me that has given up on being reasonable um, over the past. You know, ten I'm done. <laughs> and, and it, uh, it it seems to it. You know, I have survived thus far because who gets to define what's reasonable? Yeah. Well, and, and so so you have to define what's reasonable for yourself. Um, I will say that like in the things that I do with, say, for instance, the DjangoCon US and with the North, as in my role as a North American ambassador, I do those things. So at DjangoCon, I have three different chairs: the orientation chair, the lightning talks chair, and the sprints chair. I do those things because those are things that I'm, I'm willing to fight about. And so like if things start to go wrong or they become difficult, I'm still willing to sort of push through that thing because I feel those things are important and I feel like I can actually make contributions there. Um, it's the same with this North American ambassador role. I, I have a certain, a certain, you know, sort of personality and, uh, and I guess certain attributes that allow me to connect with people and I'm interested in that sort of thing. And so I'm willing to push in those areas and, and it's, it, you know, I have launched what I call the North American Grand Tour. Uh, You might see the hashtag NORAMGT on Twitter. And that's what that is. It's me literally traveling the continent. Um, But most of that is Mm -hmm. self-funded. And so if there is a thing, you know, and so I can sort of fight, I can fight those battles because those are the battles I've I've chosen to fight. Mm -hmm. That's where I'm willing to fight people. But you can't fight everywhere about everything with everybody. And so, you know. It has to have have a strategy. (laughs) Yeah, you have to decide what's important to you and where you're willing to put your resources um, time, effort, energy, but also I, I think the final thing would be uh, I, I started to prop- popularize this term of self care sprint at Django Con last year because I'm I'm the sprint chair, and so by the end of the conference, people are tired, people are often worn out, and I would remind people that one a self care sprint is a valid sprint, um, and that comes from the idea of software development sprints that happen at open source conferences. Um, so one a self care sprint is a valid sprint. And then two, the self-care sprint is the only sprint that makes every other sprint sustainable. Mm. Because, you know, if you burn yourself out, then you can't do anything else. And so if there were a final thing, I would, I would say it would be, you know, make sure that you are giving yourself self-care sprints. Because if you want to fight for something, you know, or you, or you want to you have the energy to cause a scene, you need a certain amount of energy in reserve for yourself. So you need to take care of yourself. Absolutely. That was why um, after coming back from Berlin, I decided I am doing a four day week. I am off Fridays, Saturdays and Sundays. I shifted my whole schedule. Um, there are some things because I'm like, I'm uh, yeah, this especially when you see the burnout. It's not right there, but you see it like right ahead of you. Exactly. Yeah. It's looming. Yeah, it's like, no, no, no. This is how black women die. I'm not trying to be stressed out about this. This is not that serious. Thank you so much, Kojo. It was great catching up with you. You're always such a uh, a soother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. It was good talking to you. It's, it's, it's been a while since I've, I've actually we've seen each other face to face. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So uh, thank you and have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Hashtag Cause the Podcast. And I'd like to thank all our current sponsors of the podcast and the Hashtag Cause the Movement. 
Of course, we strongly encourage everyone to become an individual sponsor of the Hashtag Cause the Scene community. Just visit the website at HashtagCauseTheScene.com to sign up today. On behalf of everyone here at Hashtag Call the Scene, we'd like to thank you again for listening to today's show and have a wonderful day.